Hello, and welcome back to the Sidekick Critic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby, and I'm delighted to have you here with me for yet another edition of this film and entertainment industry podcast. Once again, follow me on my socials, TikTok, Instagram, Letterboxd, at Sidekick Critic. Letterboxd is really the place if you're listening. You should download it, have some fun rating movies, start your diary of movies you're watching, follow me so you can see what I'm watching and see what lists I put together and short, quick reviews on movies. I'm in love with Letterboxd. I can't say it enough. So last time I was here, I was telling you about the writers agreeing to a deal. But I didn't have any details on what that contract was. Nothing had been released yet. It was very fresh news that they had just come to an agreement and leadership was voting on accepting this agreement. Well, leadership voted, the council and the board, the WGA executive negotiating committee, everyone approved it. They recommended it to the members who are currently voting on ratifying it. And as a result, they released the contract details for people like me to see, and now I can summarize it here for you. The executive committee described this as an excellent deal and a fantastic win for writers everywhere. And looking at this contract, I tend to agree with them. This is a massive win for writers. So let's cover some of those details a bit. Uh, At the most base level, they agreed to a three-year contract that starts in September of this year, 2023, and carries them through to May 2026. And the first one they got, one that was pretty much always going to happen, it was just specific numbers that mattered, was a minimum rate increase as well as increased contributions to their health and pension plans. These make sense as cost of living goes up, as inflation has been crazy for the past couple of years. The writers wanted raises that were in line with that inflation. And with this contract, it factors in continual raises as base minimum Pays increase in 5% this year, 4% next year, and 3.5% after that. So they have their next three raises on minimum pay already worked out and scheduled, but that's just the lowest level of uh, victory that the writer is able to claim with this contract. Uh, Another level of victory they're able to claim is increased terms for their employment or improved terms for their employment. Um, That includes things such as a guaranteed second step for when a writer is hired to do a first draft of a screenplay. So rather than just writing a screenplay, the studio decides they don't like it and the writer no longer has employment and all that time they spent working on it, they don't have any employment to show for it going forward. They're now guaranteed a second step, whether it be revisions, editing, uh, talking to a producer, uh, looking into a director, whatever it may be, they're guaranteed a second step, which is further employment so that they can better prepare themselves because if they're hired to write one screenplay, they may turn down a job six months out because they say, oh, I'm working on this screenplay. I don't think I'll be there for future work. I'll be occupied. If they don't have that guaranteed second step, they're then left without work and they turn down their next opportunity for work. So this is a good protection for them to keep them employed. Along that same line, another victory they're uh, claiming here is they got not only a minimum staffing requirement, but an also minimum contract requirement. So there's this thing called development rooms, which is when writers are hired to work on a show or typically a show, but sometimes a movie, they come together in this development room to start writing together, to start writing scripts, drafts, ideas, and kind of start putting the story together for the studio. 
now it is guaranteed that at least three writers in that room are going to have a minimum of 10 weeks of consecutive employment, which is great because it does, it means that the writers, that same issue with that guaranteed second step, they won't accept a job. And then two weeks later, they're out of work and they turn down other potential work. So now they're guaranteed to keep working. And as I mentioned, they also got minimum staffing requirements. So depending on the number of episodes for a show in a post greenlit room, which means the show has been ordered, they're going to do a certain number of episodes, there will be a minimum number of writers in that room. That can range from if it's six or fewer episodes, there's a minimum of three writers. If it's 13 or more episodes, there's a minimum of six writers and different numbers in between. And it may vary depending on sometimes shows have writer producers, which is typically called a showrunner, where maybe the showrunner is hired to do the entire thing, write it all themselves. But if that's not the case, the writers have protections, so they're no longer overworked. There's far more improved terms for employment here, but those are really the biggest victories that I think the Writers Guild can claim that is going to truly improve their day-to-day. Smaller victories include just basic things like accelerated payment terms. The studios have been known to not be the best at paying writers and actors, and the writers got it in their contract that they will be paid quicker for their work they're doing. They also got it written into their contract that they would be paid script fees for episodes they write. Lots of times you'll have a writer's room where they're being paid that base minimum pay to be in the room together and work together, but when run writer does the work for an episode screenplay, they are not paid any extra for that specific screenplay, which means they're not really getting paid for the extra work they're doing. Now they're getting a script fee. It's an increased compensation for them, which is just saying, we appreciate your work. We see what you're doing. We see that you did extra for this episode, so you will be compensated for that. That's great. It's one of the great things about unions. They can fight for you to get something like that, where if you are doing extra work outside of, say, just what you were hired for, you should be paid more. It's fantastic. We love to see a smaller win such as that. The two big issues, though, going into this contract uh, negotiation, as I've mentioned countless times, was AI project protections and streaming. Everything involving stream- streaming is that is changing the landscape of the industry. From the streaming aspect, there's a number of big wins that the writers are able to claim. Uh, first and foremost is a viewership-based streaming bonus. So for the first time, we're getting a definition, an agreement on what a technical view is for streaming. It's you take the total number of hours streamed domestically and you divide it by the total runtime of the show or movie. That equates to views, which is great. And then when 20% or more of a services like Netflix, domestic subscribers, view a episode, a show, a movie within the first 90 days, the writers get a bonus as a result. Another huge win because it's showing that the writer is doing good work. They are, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not just compensation. Regardless, I'm blanking on a technical contract term here, but it's just showing that when they're succeeding, they're going to get paid for succeeding. They're going to have a bonus structure, which is Something I think they've long deserved because when a show or movie is making the streamers a lot more money because it's so good or successful, shouldn't the people responsible for that, the writers, be compensated as well? Fantastic. Um, 
And then there's also probably the biggest news is that the streamers have agreed to provide the guild with the total number of hours streamed of self-produced high-budget streaming programs. That means a Netflix original series such as Stranger Things now will be Netflix will be required to give the Writers Guild the total number of hours viewed. So the writers can better adapt themselves based on these statistics. They can say, okay, this did very well. Here's why we think it did. This didn't do well. Here's where we think we may have felt fallen off. These kind of statistics are important for people to do their job. It's important to make sure they're on the right track and doing things properly. While technically those um, numbers and statistics are subject to a confidentiality agreement, I would not be surprised if somehow they get out to the general public. And I'm very curious to see what these shows are actually doing, what their total number of hours streamed are. And then finally, as I mentioned, the biggest win the writers are claiming here, and I fully agree with it, is all of the AI protections they were able to get in this contract. It was really what was shaping up to be the big battle as if the studios used AI, they would cut a ton of cost on writers across the board, but we need writers to make actually good content. And those protections include some of the following. AI cannot write or rewrite any literary material, which means that AI generated material cannot be used to undermine a writer's credit. So if you have a novel, a short story, a draft screenplay, the studios cannot give it to AI to rewrite it or to write something just based off your original idea and then take credit for it. All credit has to go to the writer. The AI is being cut out of that process entirely. But if a writer is working for a studio, they can choose to use AI as long as they, A, have the studio's uh, consent and B, follow any applicable artificial intelligence policies, whether by law or by company. So while the writers may choose to do it, the studios cannot require writers to use AI in any way, shape, or form. That's probably the biggest victory, in my opinion, as the writers have taken control of AI. They have said, okay, we understand this technology is there. At a certain point, it's going to get better and better. It's going to be used in every industry but we want to use it to our benefit rather than you using it to push us out or using it to make us do our jobs differently. We can choose to do it and say, hey, we use this to our benefit and made this great project. If a studio has materials that are generated or incorporate AI material, they must disclose that to the writers. So there is no writers being blindsided by AI. You may you won't have any controversies of a writer wrote something, but then months, years down the line, it's revealed, oh, AI actually wrote, wrote part of this, and then that writer's name is Muck. That won't happen. They have these protections, and I one of the biggest, probably second biggest to taking back control, is the WGA reserved the right to assert that exploitation of a writer's material to train AI is prohibited. So studios are not allowed to use anything given to them by writers to train AI and make it better for themselves in the future. Fantastic. This is the kind of protections that the Writers Guild and every writer, no matter how big, how small, we're looking for. It's fantastic to hear. I am very excited. With all of those details in the contract, I don't see how this is anything but a massive win for the Writers Guild. I'm very excited to see them get this win. I think this is a huge step. I don't think we'll see a strike in three years. I think this 
covered a lot of those basics. I don't think the studios are going to be able to backtrack on it or else they'll never get the writers back. This has set the writers up for many years to come to be protected in this changing industry against AI and within streaming to better suit and prepare themselves for what's to come. But as I've mentioned, the writer strike was not the only strike. One down, we still have one to go. SAG-AFTRA is still on strike currently, and we don't have a ton of updates, but this week we do have some new ones. Finally, for the first time in two and a half months, SAG-AFTRA and AMPTP have sat down together at the negotiating table. That was Monday, October 2nd, the first time they've met since they've gone on strike. Also present at the meeting, the first time there with SAG's negotiating committee were some of the top executives. Bob Iger with Disney, Ted Sarandos with Netflix, David Zaslav with Warner Brothers Discovery, among others, were all present for this meeting. I've seen some news articles refer to them as the closers, as they were present at the final meetings with the Writers Guild. I don't know if closers is quite correct, or if it's more, they're the ones that realize these strikes are going to hurt us and hurt us badly very soon. We need to get in there and get it done, and they were able to do that, which is fantastic. And hopefully that continues. I'm feeling optimistic as they met on Monday, they met again on Wednesday. Supposedly they have meetings scheduled for Friday. They'll take the weekend to confer amongst themselves before meeting again on Monday. To have meetings planned for the future, I think means that there is progress being made. But Fran Drescher was quoted saying recently that we have to temper our expectations when it comes to resolving the SAG deal because One size does not fit all. Just because the Writers Guild came to an agreement does not mean that deal will fit the Actors Guild. They have much different concerns. They have a much more diverse membership. There's a ton to work out. It was 81 days since the last discussion, and they were very far apart from what it sounds like in that last discussion. So I'll keep you updated. I'm hoping maybe early next week I can hop on here for an emergency pod to talk all about SAG getting it done. But we'll see. It'll probably follow a similar process of it's announced they agreed to a deal. It's a couple days before we get the details and then further before it ratified. But I am feeling optimistic. I think the studios are highly motivated to get this done. Having the actors present, having them being able to promote movies as we approach the second half of this fall season and into the winter season will be huge to getting the box office returns back on track. So I'm feeling cautiously optimistic about the SAG strike. Okay, that's all the strike content I have for today. I really dove deep into that Writers Guild contract. If you have any questions or still aren't understanding anything, reach out to me, message me, email me, sidekickcritic at gmail.com. I'd love to talk about it because I find this very intriguing and I feel I have a very good grasp of what all of this means. And I, like I said, I love talking about it. I love reading about it, that whole thing. So let's move on to the meat of today's episode. I'm doing something very different. I'm doing a first for the Sidekick Critic podcast. I have no in-theaters movies to talk about. I am not talking about a spattering of different films. I have one theme. Today I'm doing a deep dive into a director for the first time. Today's episode is all about Wes Anderson. Uh, Wes has had a huge year. He Back in June, Asteroid City released uh, theatrically. And then just a week ago, four short films from Wes Anderson were released on Netflix based on Roald Dahl short stories. You may recognize Roald Dahl's name. He wrote James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, an iconic actor. 
actor, an iconic author that uh, has so many stories, especially short stories such as these. It was really exciting for me to dive into those short films, and it prompted me to finally do my Wes Anderson podcast. I've wanted to do this since June when I saw Asteroid City. I never got around to it because I felt I needed to see every single one of his movies in order to talk about him. I still haven't seen them all. There's three movies left in his filmography I have not seen. I'm going to do it without it because I'm excited and I feel good and it's a good time to talk about Wes. So we're going to start with his theatrical release from this year. Here's my review for Asteroid City. I have now watched this movie twice. I'm still not quite positive on how much I like it, but let me tell you, it makes me really think. And every time I think about it, I like it a little bit more. Let's start. It's hard to kind of describe what the movie's about, but I'll give it a shot. The movie, it's a movie about a play that tells the story of a grieving father and his family that stop in a small rural town in the what they call the California, Arizona, Nevada desert, only to have their worldview changed forever. This sounds kind of basic, right? It doesn't sound too confusing, but there's a lot more to it. When thinking about this movie and looking back on it, the first thing that constantly comes to my mind is the fact that this is the most typical Wes Anderson movie, and it leans more heavily into his style than any other I've seen. I've seen eight of his feature-length movies. I've seen 12 total, including the short films, and this really leans into it heavily. The first time I watched it in theaters, I walked out of there not really knowing what I thought of it. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. I didn't understand it, so to say, and I just didn't know what to do with myself, but I kept coming back to one exchange of dialogue towards the end. The lead actor and the director of the play are talking, And the actor asks, or states, I still don't know what the play's about. To which the director responds, that doesn't matter. Just keep on telling the story. That, I think, was the beginning of me starting to understand Wes. You don't always have to know what it's about. You just have to be there for the story and be along for the ride. And in Asteroid City specifically, I think it was hard for me to grasp because there are just so many different themes and metaphors that can really be discovered as you pick the movie apart and pay attention and look for different things. For example, I'm going to explain the scenario within the play within the movie, and you tell me if this sounds familiar to you at all. We're in this small town with visitors and residents of the town. Everyone there is doing their own thing. They're pretty eccentric people going about their regular life. There's a uh, event that has a couple military generals present. It's a junior stargazing event. And as this event is unfolding, an alien shows up and true chaos ensues. No one knows what to do afterwards. The government is in complete and utter chaos. A quarantine is put in place. The people in quarantine in this town begin to go stir crazy. The quarantine is then lifted but immediately put back in place right after it's lifted. And then the next day, the main character, the father, Augie Steinbeck, wakes up and everyone has moved on. The quarantine is completely over. There's barely any remnants of it. And it's back to life as we know it. Does that sound familiar at all? Kind of sounds like the entire pandemic we went through and 
the flip-flopping in quarantines, the sudden everyone just moving on and getting back to their regular lives. It's a very interesting theme, and it's interesting to see Wes Anderson's take on it of all the eccentricities and people going stir-crazy and the things they resort to to keep themselves occupied and entertained during quarantine. But that's just a theme within the play. The Asteroid City play, as it's called in the movie, has that theme very heavy. Like many of Wes Anderson's movies, though, and I will dive into this in further detail later, there's an outer layer to this movie. There's a second story going on that is Outside of the actual play, we're seeing a story about them making the play and the actors and people producing it outside of their roles. You have uh, Jason Schwartzman character, he's playing Augie Steinbeck in the play. He struggles with understanding the play and taking on his role. You have Scarlett Johansson's character who is struggling with her own personal relationship issues and what that means for her in the play. We have the writer, Conrad Earp, played by Edward Norton, who is struggling with trying to write the play to the best of his ability and trying to make it mean something. And then finally, you have the director, played by Adrian Brody, who is has a litany of his own life problems, is forced to live on the set of the play, but he still has to direct this and put it all together somehow. And it's really interesting when you look at those two layers, that outer layer of the production of the play and the inner layer of the actual play, Asteroid City. That first layer is dealing with people struggling with art, uh, whether they're an actor, writer, director, it's them struggling with it and their role within this piece of art. And you have the inner layer of the play, this work of art, which deals with the character struggling with science and life and extraterrestrial life and what all of this means. And it's a very frequent theme in life that art and science can be at odds with each other. And to see how Wes put this scientific struggle inside of a piece of art that has its own art struggle is really intriguing to me and interesting to think about the layers to that. And then there's a scene at the end where we're outside of the play, but we have two actors with one that has a scene that's cut and they essentially act out a scene of the play while standing on balconies across from each other. And it's just these layers woven into each other. And it's really impressive how he's able to mix all these together. Like I said, I've watched this twice now. 80% of everything I just talked about with Asteroid City, I did not understand until my second viewing. Um, that to me is a sign of a really good movie that it you have to take it in a couple times. You have to really think about it. And every time I think about it, I feel like I understand it a little more, but I have a different question. I love a movie that makes me think. And the more I think about this, the more I tend to like it. And it moves further up my rankings and my rating moves higher. But that said, my rating for Asteroid City was an 8.2 out of 10. I'm going to watch this for a third time probably this year because it is such an intriguing story and movie to me. Okay. As I mentioned, Wes Anderson had four short films come out on Netflix last week. I watched all of them and I had a blast and those are really what spurred me into this Wes Anderson deep dive on the podcast. So... Let's start with, we're going to go in the order I watched them, 
here's my review for The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. Wonderful Story is the perfect summation of this short film. It's only 40 minutes long, but it builds this almost Inception-like story with different layers. As you start with Roald Dahl telling a story about a character, Henry Sugar. We see Henry Sugar, he begins telling a story about a doctor, Dr. Chatterjee, who begins telling another story about Imdad Khan, who finally builds that last layer of telling his own story. And from there, these layers are built and built and built. And then we see them conclude. You see that inner one close up and you get your conclusion. And then each layer outer finishes a story. And in just 40 minutes, he's able to tell essentially four different stories to completion to a satisfying conclusion. And this more than anything else is really what solidified for me, Wes Anderson's quality because I got a new understanding of him. It showed me things I had not seen before, despite seeing multiple of his movies. And I just was enamored with the story right from the get. It felt like a book you could not put down. It's the best way I can describe it. Highly recommend if you're only going to watch one of them, watch this 40 minutes, it's easy, it's accessible. The wonderful story of Henry Sugar getting a 9.1 out of 10 for me. All right, on to the second short film. Here's my review for The Swan. The Swan tells the story of two large, ignorant bullies ruthlessly pursuing a small but brilliant boy. What's most interesting about this is that Rupert Friend narrates and acts out 95% of this movie. It's only 20 minutes long, but wow, is he charismatic on this screen. Do you feel an instant emotional connection to him? I, I love it. And then the perfect summation of the whole short film is given by Ray Fiennes' Roald Dahl at the end, where he says, some people just have indomitable spirits that cannot be broken no matter what happens. And in The Swan, that has a double meaning that left me quiet for a couple minutes after it ended reflecting on it. It's somber, it's sad, but it's good. I, I really like The Swan. It, rating would probably be higher if I had more fun with it. It's not fun compared to the comparatively to the other short films. The Swan's getting an 8.1 out of 10 for me. Okay, on to the third. Here's my review for The Rat Catcher. This is probably my least favorite of the short films. It tells the story of a news reporter, a shop owner, and the shop owner's rat problem, so he brings out a rat catcher to solve this. This is very interesting. Wes really challenges the actors in this all to do different things. You have Richard Ayodi, the news reporter, who narrates the story as it's unfolding, but also has to play the character of the news reporter. You have Ray Fine, who is playing the rat catcher and takes on this rat-like persona throughout. And finally, you have Rupert Friend, who is finding the space between the two of them. The acting performances are really the good on this for me. The story didn't get me so much. I think that might be partially because the other three stories I was sucked into almost immediately. Maybe I have to rewatch The Rat Catcher to see if I'd like it more, but overall my rating is 6.5 out of 10. All right, we're on to the last short film. Here's my review for Poison. Poison tells the story of a poisonous snake that slithers onto an Englishman's stomach in India his associate and doctor race to save him. 
What I love most about this one is the story is narrated by the associate, played by Dev Patel, similar to the rat catcher that he is narrating the story while also acting within it. And once again, Wes asks these actors to do very specific things. And what I most enjoyed about it really is that more than any of the others, more than almost anything else I've seen from Wes, this highlights his specific brand of humor the best. It just shows how well he understands what he is trying to do. And I absolutely loved it. It wasn't quite Henry Sugar for me. I think that's going to stay my number one no matter how many times I rewatch any of these, but it was really good. So that's why my review for Poison is going to come to an 8.3 out of 10. All four of these are really good and they're very accessible to watch. The longest is The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar at 40 minutes. The other three are all right around the 20 minute mark, so it's very easy to put them on and watch them quickly. I watched them all in one day in one sitting. I mean, why not? It's If you can spend, that comes to what, an hour, 40 minutes? That's shorter than most other regular movies, so it's very easy, and they're just enjoyable short stories. It's like reading a quick book. That's, I think, the best way to describe it, because they're based on short stories. So I mentioned a lot of different things in these reviews for Asteroid City and all four short films that I said I'd come back to. So now let's kind of look at Wes Anderson, the director and the writer as a whole. For so long, and I say so long, but it's really been for this entire year, I've worked toward watching all of Wes Anderson's movies and I really enjoyed them, but I didn't understand what it was. Like it's clear he had his own unique style, but I didn't understand what was special about it. And I couldn't quite grasp why he was getting this seemingly unending critical acclaim. And it really just kept eluding me no matter how many movies I watched. And right off the bat, no matter what you watch from Wes Anderson, it's very clear initially that visually he's very unique. Um, Quickly, I picked up on the fact that he's very influenced by stage plays and he pays homage to them with these moving set pieces and backgrounds, these muted color palettes, a symmetrical framing or uh, forced perspective. It's just very similar to stage plays and it's heavily influenced and I was able to pick up on that quickly. But I I still didn't get the acclaim. I enjoyed that visual style, but to me it's like that wasn't enough. And then I watched the short films and it really clicked and pieces from movies I'd seen prior started to really fall into place. When thinking about Wes Anderson, first and foremost, he is a storyteller. You have to focus on the stories and everything you watch from him more than anything else. Give the story your primary attention. Then everything you watch, he is challenging the actors he works with to go outside of their comfort zone, to be different, unique, show us something new or do something new for themselves. It's a hard thing to notice, but you may notice a lot of his characters are quirky and weird and odd. Why? And it's a known thing in Hollywood and within the industry and those that follow that actors love working with Wes and it's because He's challenging them. He's not giving them a typical role or a typecast role. He's saying, show me something new, be something different for me. And I think when you've been acting for 10, 15, 20 plus years, when you're a megastar, it 
can sometimes drag on. You want to really try something truly unique. And Wes Anderson is one of the few directors out there providing a role unlike any other that they could possibly get. I mean, you look at something like Asteroid City and all the A-list stars that are in it and how small the budget was. You had Scarlett Johansson, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Brian Cranston, uh, I'm Jeffrey Wright, I'm blanking on my names here, Tom Hanks was in it, uh, I think Adrian Brody was in it, Edward Norton, I don't know if I mentioned him, uh, Willem Dafoe made an appearance in this movie, it was just, the list went on and on, Jeff Goldblum, a massive, truly A-list cast. Why? Why when they're not making a lot of money? It's because they want to work with Wes. And actors continue to go back to working with him. And he's been known to work with actors repeatedly because it seems they like the challenge and they have fun working with him. But after challenging the actors, when you're watching the Wes Anderson movie, like I said, first, pay attention to the story. Second, look for what he's doing with the actors and how they're being different and how he's challenging them. And then finally, he does all of that with a visual style that's unlike anyone else alive is doing. And it's he's almost working to distract you from what else he's doing. He's using the most basic set pieces and camera work to pull your attention away from the story he's telling. It's like a battle between Wes and the viewer where he's saying, I'm going to give you this incredible story with these performances unlike any you'll see, but... First, you have to get past my visual onslaught of choices you have not seen in another movie. I, With this new understanding, like I said, this just dawned on me recently, I really cannot wait to go back and watch more of his movies, especially some of my favorites. I've seen Asteroid City twice now, and with this new understanding, and the more I think about it, the more I like it, how much more am I going to like his other movies? It will be really interesting for me to see how my perspective changes as time goes on. And, I mean, it's fantastic. But, really, I can't do a Wes Anderson podcast without giving some type of list. Initially, I was going to do a ranking of all Wes Anderson movies, but I'm going to narrow it down to just my top five. So far, because, like I said, I haven't seen all of them. The movies I haven't seen. There's only three feature-length films left that I have not seen. That would be Rushmore, The Darjeeling Limited, and the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I plan to watch all those before the end of the year. Maybe one of them will crack in my top five. Who's to say? I feel like this five is pretty solidified. It feels pretty accurate to me and how much I've enjoyed each movie. I haven't seen all of them twice. I've seen only one of them twice. I plan to watch them all again probably before the end of the year as I'm just loving everything I've watched from him. So without further ado, here's my top five Wes Anderson films. Coming in at number five is The French Dispatch. This is like a, you have this newspaper, The French Dispatch, but it's a movie of one edition. It's a movie you really have to commit to and stick to. My friend Anastasia started it, but only made it like 20 minutes in, I think she said. If you can wait through it, if you can pay attention to the story and understand what the actors are doing, it's a great movie. It's charming. It's very charming to watch all of these little stories. At number four, Asteroid City. This continues to move up my list every time I watch it and think about it because I get something new every time. 
I loved it. It's You have to go into it with an open mind. It is the most Wes Anderson films of all that I've watched, but it's not a bad thing in my personal opinion. At number three, The Wonderful Story of Henry Sugar. The only short film to make it into my top five. It really is just a wonderful story. I had such a blast with it. Couldn't decide, figure out where it was going at first, and by the end, I wanted so much more from this story. It's 40 minutes. Give it a shot. What do you have to lose? At number two is The Grand Budapest Hotel. My personal introduction to Wes Anderson was this movie, and it's so charming. It has an amazing sense of humor. It has all of the typical Wes Anderson visual aspects. It's just enjoyable. I have nothing bad to say about The Grand Budapest Hotel, but my number one Wes Anderson movie, Moonrise Kingdom, tells the story of innocence and independence in such a perfect way. It is one of my favorite movies ever. It's without a doubt in my top 10. On a given day, it probably shuffles into my all-time top five because it's just, it's like a happy place for me, that movie. It's truly so, so charming. I, if I'm going to recommend one Wes Anderson movie, it'll be Moonrise Kingdom. It's what I think you should start with if you've never watched any of his movies so that you can see if you like his style on a very accessible level. I love Moonrise Kingdom, my number one Wes Anderson movie. All right, that was my Wes Anderson deep dive. I really enjoyed that personally. It was nice to give a director my full attention for a whole episode. I think it was about 25 minutes I spent just talking about Wes Anderson. I still have three more of his movies to watch. I have a bunch I want to rewatch with this new understanding I talked about. But next week, I'm back onto the new releases, which is very exciting for me. I've already seen two that I have ready to go, uh, just waiting to give my review for. That would be Dumb Money and The Creator. I plan on seeing The Exorcist Believer this Friday. I wasn't going to see it. My friend asked. And then I was told, you know, you mentioned you might do a spooky episode, so I have to see a new release such as this. And then there's a ton of movies coming out in the next month that I'm personally excited for. A lot of them are smaller, more independent films, which really has me hopeful for what's coming. Uh, also coming out this week, uh, the week of October 6th, you have She Came to Me, the story of a composer who has an affair stars Peter Dinklage as the composer and Hathaway as his wife and Marissa Tomei as his mistress. And you have the Royal hotel, uh, two girls take a job, a summer job at a hotel in the middle of nowhere. Australia it stars Julia Garner from Ozark. I'm very excited. It looks like a great thriller movie. October 13th is a big weekend. That's the heiress tour release. I'll be there opening weekend. I'm very excited for it. But also that weekend coming out is Anatomy of a Fall. I know nothing of what this movie's about. All I know is I've heard rave reviews from anyone who's seen a screening of it or saw it at, on the film festival circuit. It's supposed to be an Oscar contender. Very excited for that. Speaking of Oscar contenders, October 20th, Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's Next Picture starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone, Robert De Niro, Jesse Plemons. Another one that people are saying could be a huge winner at the Oscars. I cannot wait for that movie specifically. I love Martin Scorsese. I love Leo. I love De Niro. 
it's going to be long. It's over three and a half hours long, but I cannot wait to watch that in theaters. It may be my first Scorsese movie in theaters, which is really exciting, if I'm being honest. That same weekend, you have Foe starring Sorcery Ronan and, I believe, Paul Mescal, another thriller of a husband who's going to leave his wife behind. Uh, looks very good, very intense. I'm super excited. I love Sorcery Ronan. She's an incredible actress. And you also have Dix the Musical from A24 coming out. I'm excited to see what A24 does with a musical. Uh, it's, they've done no wrong in my eyes so far, so that'll be really good, I think. October 25th, I'll be seeing uh, Midsommar. I cannot wait. It's uh, from director Ari Aster. It's part of my uh, personal mission to see a bunch of spooky movies this Halloween. I've never seen it. Great to see an A24 re-release back in theaters. October 27th comes out, Five Nights at Freddy's. I wasn't going to see it, but I feel like I kind of have to for my spooky season episode. That'll give me a bunch I've seen this year that I could talk about. And that wraps up what's coming out in October. That was two, four, six, eight, ten movies I want to see before the end of this month. It's very exciting stuff for me. I'll be here talking about them. Keep your ear to the ground for me to hear about any SAG-AFTRA updates. I'm hoping within the next week I can share with you that they've come to an agreement and I can get those contract details. Make sure you follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Sidekick Critics so that you can stay up to date on any information and news I see. And then follow me on Letterboxd, join Letterboxd. It's so much fun. It is the place to be if you like watching movies or if you listen to my podcast and want to see what I'm watching and watch for yourself. And that is everything I have for today. Once again, I want to say thank you for stopping by. I have a blast with this. I hope you have a blast listening to it. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Crosby. Thanks for stopping by the Sidekick Critic Podcast. 